0: Um, our next speaker is James Kakamo. He is Associate Professor of Theology in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at St. Joseph's University. Uh, he is also a software and website programmer and an award winning instructional and graphic designer for the film Mothers with Disabilities. So that's a wide range of talents and skills. <laughs> Dr. Kakamo's research interests include the ethics of media, computing, and information technology which he frequently brings into conversation with Catholic social teaching and theological reflection on ritual, liturgy, and moral formation. His scholarly publications include Living Worship and The Ethics of Branding in the Age of Ubiquitous Media, Insights from Catholic Social Teaching. Please join me in welcoming Dr. James Kakama.
1: Uh, i'd like to start too by thanking the Theology Institute and Dr. Weaver for inviting me to be with you today and for also just taking up this topic in the first place. I think um, the topic of technology is not something that theologians take up enough and something very important to start thinking uh more sort of institutionally about as sort of a as as a church Let me start this um I confess at this point also that I feel a bit out of step with the rest of the presentations. Um, Now I'm not gonna be talking about bodies. Um, (laughs) And I'm not gonna be talking, I I feel like we have three beautiful, uh, uplifting symphonies and I'm gonna bring it down to a sort of a street rock and roll level uh, for stuff that we deal with in some ways uh, every day though. Uh, So I invite you to shift gears a little bit with me, uh, look at another set of questions. Last year, there was a column in America Magazine that was reflecting on the state of American society, echoing concerns that fuel books like Maggie Johnson's recent Distracted, the erosion of attention in the coming dark age. The author of the column suggested that our society has some thinking to do, some hard thinking. The emergence of mobile technology has led us to a point where we are disconnected from nature and from those around us. We ignore the needy stranger in our midst because we're jabbering away on our cell phones. We even endanger the lives of others as was the case back in Boston uh, two summers ago when a subway driver texted his way right into another train uh, uh, injuring 47 people. Continuously plugged into the electronic devices, our technology has distracted us from the things that matter, from the mindful center of the Christian life view is not particularly uncommon within the theological scholarly community while there are some who see communication information technology as a benefit to humankind there remains deep-seated suspicion of all things digital. Some argue that digital technologies are profoundly unchristian at the core. Graham Ward for instance suggests that the internet is irredeemably pervaded by the culture of eroticism unable to advance the culture of well-ordered desire. Um, more common is the, is the idea that while technology does offer some real benefits, the really real can only be found while we're disconnected. Quentin Schultze, I think, put it quite pointedly and well in his book, The Habits of the High Tech Heart, when he suggested that even if religious people, use commu- and technologies use, religious people and communities use technologies as their tools, they should be, quote unquote, de-technologized altogether in mindset and core values for many theologians, I think, view this technology imperfectly helpful to downright dangerous um, somehow as an impediment to the Christian life. Yet, it seems to me this, this is not uh, really in step with how uh, we experience our everyday lives in personal, economic, educational, social benefits of information and communication technologies. Uh, like the world wide web, cell phones, mobile computings, um, or even their spiritual benefits. Many churches are in regular contact with church members via text, with email prayer lists, or parish news, sermon texts, and even streaming videos of services. Religious blogging is so popular it it spawned its own conference, the catchy name GodBlogCon which they have since changed to the Christian web conference and it's big business, right? A company called, uh, like, Flocknote, uh, they're attempting to monetize this uh, by developing one-stop communication services for churches and congregations. Within the evangelical Christian community, multiplication of books that focus on using social media for evangelizations, like books like The Church of Facebook and Thy Kingdom Connected are witness to this. But it's not just an evangelical thing. This position of extreme skepticism doesn't really fit within the Catholic tradition all that well, either. Uh, for nearly a century, the institutional Roman Catholic Church has examined social communications in a series of papal, Vatican, bishop and bishop texts, doing essentially media theory before the academic discipline of media theory really existed. For the Pope's, technologies of social communi- co- uh, communication things like film, radio, television, albums, cassette tapes are understood in and of themselves to be gifts of God, given so that human beings are able to develop to their fullest and to create functioning, supportive societies. In the 1971 document, Communio Progressio, it, it goes so far as to assert that the means of social communication have an open, quote, allotted place in the history of creation, in the incarnation, and in redemption, close quote. And in the more recent writings, past couple of years, the internet and other new communication technologies are understood in the same way as tools that can contribute to the enrichment of the human person and the common good, and even to true communion. Now, scholar Brenda Brasher may have, a, I think, gone a bit overboard when she wrote in her two thousand book, "Give Me That Online Religion," that using computers for online religious activity could become the dominant form of. Religious religion and religious expression in the next century, I think the internet is unlikely to become the salvation of the world. Yet, it is also clear that from a Christian and, and Catholic Christian perspective, sort of thoroughgoing condemnations of the role of information and in communication technologies are not merely impractical, they contradict long-standing practice and moral reflection. So. What's the middle ground? Uh, If communication and information technologies have a place in the Christian life, what is it? Or to turn it around, what resources does the Christian tradition have to offer to help us understand the ethics of information and communication technology use and how to shape new practices in our daily lives? Over the next uh, 40 minutes or so, I'd like to make some suggestions about what this shape might look like. What it might look like when virtue is rewired for the next humanity. I'll start by identifying several aspects of contemporary information and communication technology that I think are characteristic to its shape and implementation, uh, a little different from the, um, the abstract of the generativity, controlled push media, data agnosticism and opaque oversight. If you don't know what those are, I'll explain them, um, and I'll discuss some of the opportunities and liabilities that each offers us. Um, I'll go on to talk about some ways in which the central moral virtues of the Christian tradition might provide insight into concrete technical pra- or technological practices and offer resources for shaping an appropriate, perhaps, uh, patterns of Christian life as we look to the future. Um, as a side note, you, you might have noticed so far I've been using the unwieldy term communication and information technologies. Um, by that, I mean the whole sort of group of, of uh, devices and technologies we use to uh, connect with other people and find information, computers, cell phones, mobile devices that are lodged somewhere in between like iPads and smartphones and GPS and location-based services and RFID tracking and appliance and home monitoring, all those kinds of things. Um, it's an unwieldy term. I'm just going to say technology for the next uh, bit here. Um, I'm not talking about bodily technologies though, okay? Um, right. so when we're thinking about the morality of something, it's important to begin backwards, to to take a step back and make sure we have the facts right, understanding the action itself, the circumstances, and its consequences. So before kind of jumping to this Christian wired life, um, let's think a little bit about the wiring. While there are lots of ways to describe technologies, I'd like to point out four characteristics that I think span different devices. We could do this by talking about cell phones first and then computers second and then the web third. Um, but I think there are, are characteristics that span the particular devices and that I think probably um, originated with the, with the beginnings of these, uh, these technologies and will continue, I think, to play out as our technologies, the devices, the gadgets change. Um, the first of these is generativity. Uh, as Dr. Weaver mentioned in her introduction, I have a background in it as a professional programmer. Between my master's and doctoral studies, I worked at a small uh, multimedia company in Chicago and did presentational and sales support and educational software for Fortune 100 companies. And as a graduate student, I continued that work as a programmer, really breaking out as the web was developing in the, in the mid-90s, um, really to supplement my income. It probably would no, come as no surprise that being a freelance programmer pays better than being a theology grad student. Uh, and I really liked eating regularly, so, and I've continued this work uh, now, the Living Worship uh, 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 publication that she mentioned is actually in a, a video a DVD and an interactive case study of a congregational worship practices in a congreg- real-life congregation in the city of Chicago. Um, one of my most frustrating things, though, is that over the space of 15 years since I, I was in that full time, a good deal of my practical programming knowledge has become obsolete. Things simply don't work the same way they did in the mid-90s. There's new programming languages, new interactivity, new purposes, features, WWW, IM, SMS, RSS, GPS, FLV, H4, H-264, Flack, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, LinkedIn, Foursquare, it's hard to keep up. I'm probably not alone in this disorientation with the sort of rapidity of technological development. As it turns out, the, the array of new technologies and applications and services is really not just some kind of accident, random occurrence, or the fruits of a capitalistic desire to convert new technologies into product. Rather. Uh, It's a foundational aspect to the design of many systems that underlie our information and communication technologies uh, like computers and the Internet. It's what Jonathan Zittran refers to as generativity. Generativity is a system's capacity to produce unanticipated change through unfiltered contributions from broad and varied audiences. Consider your television. It's an example of a non-generative technology. The hardware is locked in you can't change the resolution of the screen. That was set by the NTSC standard 640 by 480 lines at 30 frames and two fields. Once it's manufactured, you're set. You're not going to change the size of the screen. You can't open it up and change the internal speaker system or the audio voicing unless it was built to do that. Heck, it took more than 15 years for us to move to standard NTSC to, what is it, last year, the big digital transition to HD. Um, until, re- until well, until recently, even the idea of adding an application to a television was pretty much unheard of. And in contrast, think of your computer. You can take it apart. You can add new things to it. You can upgrade the memory and add a bigger hard drive. On a desktop, you upgrade the processor. You can change the monitor. You can change the resolution. I've got three on my system back in the office. You can add software. You can write your own software to do what you want to do. A computer would be a generative technology. It's built to be changed and enable you to produce change with it. And this generativity was really part of the ethos at the outset of the development of the web. Zitran notes that the initial developers believed that it didn't need to be perfect and many of the technologies in the information and communication landscape really are not perfect. They're not built to be that. Most of the problems, he suggests, could be solved later by others and that others would be interested in solving those problems rather than just creating more problems. With a moderate outlay of cash and very little training, you could build your own website, right? With a bit more cash and a bit more programming training, you can write an application that can be put onto a cell phone that does something entirely new. And we've seen this. Craigslist and Google and eBay and MySpace, Facebook, YouTube, all applications of basic technologies for web for new uses, many of which we couldn't imagine 20, even 10 years ago developed by individuals or small groups outside of the normal structure of corporate America. For those of you who use this generativity I think the opportunities posed by it are probably readily apparent through creative problem solving engineers have developed some applications that I think really do enhance our lives and our work. The living worship project that I did Um, One of us was here in Philly, one was at Fuller in in California and one of us was at um, Asbury in the middle of Kentucky and we were able to keep and do collaborative work using Skype, using uh, email, using instant messaging to create something in the world that would not have happened otherwise. I think of, of one area, sort of the uh, the explosion of creativity we've uh, we've seen over the past 20 years. It's so much easier to uh, create artistic and and, and and visual works right now than it was back when I was doing a reel-to-reel tape machine and cutting tape. There were only a few of us that I knew uh, who had those kinds of boxes, and now everybody can create media, and it which is. And it really takes the, the sort of black boxness out of the process of going to a recording studio. You can work it out. And that, I think, empowers, is, is a very powerful idea that anyone can be a creator, anyone can shape the world. That's a powerful message. The generative capacity, I also think, has enabled people to take fresh approaches to new I- ideas. I think in the social justice and advocacy world, the, the, even that, you know, that little button, the hunger site? donate to, you just hit this button, single click button, um, was important when it was developed. Oh my, that's probably 10 years ago almost now. Um, But the way in which people donated to the people of Haiti after the earthquake on their cell phones. These are new and creative ways of dealing with problems that exist in the world. Um, There are also, of course, liabilities that uh, come with this this generativity, no question. Uh, People are interested. in hampering the common good, no question. A viruses and malware affect millions of systems, even you know our phones now hampering people's ability to do work they've got to do. Online phishing schemes and hacking compromises banking institutions and financial information and medical records. Denial of service attacks have shown to be effective tools of corporate mayhem. Uh, I think of the anonymous uh, attacks that had to do with the WikiLeaks scandal this past year or the uh, attack on Georgian Government by Russian forces in 2008, um, or the Komodo uh, Registration Authority attacks by an Iran- Iranian, uh, single Iranian uh, hacker last week, the week before. Generativity does not always mean uh, common good or integral development, but it certainly can point us in that direction. A second uh, characteristic that I see a lot is this what I'd call controlled push media. Um, Those of us who are trained, uh, I think I was on the cusp of sort of the digitization of research. For my masters I went into the library and found the Reader's Guide to Periodical uh, Literature and poured over every volume of that. By the time I came back for my doctoral studies, most everything was going online. Um, And this this cornerstone of research, you go to the library, you go to the journals, you find the relevant research and whatever question you have, and then you work back at the information, develop your thinking the going out and the coming back. This would be considered what we call pull media. You go out and pull the information back to you that you want. These days, the the information landscape is really different, right? It's characterized by sophisticated and dynamic systems of information delivery, not retrieval. Both exist, but the delivery has really developed. Um, It's all about pushing information to you, media that comes either uninvited or often invited so remotely that it appears as if it were uninvited. Early on it was those pop-up ads constantly, um, general, broadcast to all. Then it was about targeted and curated information. Companies like Amazon, which informed you sort of of new books and new things dependent upon the particular things you viewed or you bought. Um, And Now we're seeing what I would call sort of a third approach, this uh, this, uh, where you get media pushed to you and it happens according to your own rules. There are news readers that give you headlines from your favorite uh, news sources or Google News searches where you uh, say, I want the news associated with these keywords. There's Facebook and Twitter which give you news and information about people you know or you want to follow. Uh, It's increasingly rare, rare, I think, that we, of our own initiative, go out and search the breadth and depth of the information around us. Um, And if we do, we don't often look past the first page of the search results. You know, kind of dig in and keep going there. Um, we let things come to us, things that at some point we've theoretically requested. The development of this kind of what I would call controlled push media provides opportunities uh, for maintaining connections with people in and information in a world that's increasingly distracting. In some respects, the problem is not that we're awash in information these days, it's that we're awash in bad information. Using data aggregation tools can provide us good information, information that's relevant to what we care about, so we can free up parts of our mind to deal deeply with that material as we become more intentional about the way we spend our time and energy in a complex world that necessarily involves paring down all the information. At the same time, the precision with which our information needs are met can lead, I think, to the liability that we shift to a receptive posture with respect to communication information in our learning and in our socializing. My students confess their basic operating principle is if I didn't hear about it online, it didn't happen. Um, I don't think the, the teachers in, and older, in, the, in the group are all that different. I've heard so many colleagues say, why didn't they send us an email about this? And I was there in the room when they told us. But if it doesn't come in via email, it wasn't, it's not real. We have a confidence that we know What, I'm sorry, we have a confidence that what we need to know will be pushed to us at some point, will come to us. And the confidence is often misplaced. Always on may not be always enough. So third characteristic I think is important is data agnosticism. Way back in 1993, there's a famous New Yorker cartoon by Peter Steiner in which there's the dog sitting at the computer and the next dog and the one dog is saying to each other, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. As a data system, our communication information technologies are generally built to treat data as data without bias or regard for who's sending it, who's created, it, and what it contains. As long as the packets of data are intact and combined into some sort of valid unit at the endpoint, the basic system level processes are satisfied. Your phone rings, I'm sorry, your phone calls and my phone calls are at a technical level the same. It doesn't matter who's calling whom for the system there's no difference between a JPEG of a couple of friends, a JPEG of child pornography, or a JPEG with encrypted data embedded in it. The system itself is data agnostic. Little can be known about the nature of the particular information enclosed in the data externally. The practical upshot of this is that I think for the average end user who's got no administrative clearance at the ISP level or on a system wide, it's often difficult to know the authorship or content of a piece of data unless it's somehow intentionally identified. Uh, It's difficult to know who is on the other side of the transaction, if it's truthful or not, if it's credible or not, if it's benign or not, Um, all the malware that's out there floating around, stuff that spoofs as legitimate software but has uh, bad intentions. I saw an interesting application of this on Friday uh, with the Android app, this text and walk, it was supposed to be this um, you can text and it uses the camera so you can still see what you're walking into, right, on your screen. Well, it was, somebody pushed up this application, said text and walk, and it was only at a legal downloading site. So when you used it, the app stole your data, sent out texts to all the people in your phone that said, hey, I just downloaded off a, pri- a pirated app off the internet. I'm stupid and cheap and because it, it only costs a dollar. Don't steal like I did. Yoikes! Bad wear, good wear, it all looks the same. And it adds a level of complexity to the concept, this aspect of generativity that I talked about. One opportunity opened by the anonymity of data agnosticism, I think, that's been, it's reset some of the old conventions of amassing credibility in the offline world. By stripping away what marks the privileged speaker, source, or perspective, data agnosticism has enabled entry of people into political and religious and artistic discourse who have not previously had entry into the conversation. There's tons of examples of this, but I think of Philadelphia, South Philly's own Rocco Palmo with his author, uh, the author of the blog on political political science and politics of the Catholic Church Whispers in the Loggia. Fascinating, if you haven't checked it out, it's a fascinating uh, website um, sort of the inside, it's like inside politics for the Catholic Church. Uh, the data is so good, the news is so current, it gives an incredible view and insight into the Roman Catholic Church, a view I'm sure that not many bishops appreciate. The search engines have no content-based reason to point you in the direction of Rocco any less than the Vatican, your parish, church, or Opus Dei data agnosticism has opened up a new space for new voices in the church and society, grounded in what Daniel Solov refers to as new ad hoc trust networks uh, the, that are unseating traditional uh, kind of lo- loci, locuses, loci of authority. Uh, on the liability side, I think we're all pretty willing to agree with Adam Smith's observation that in the great anonymous city, some men and women simply give themselves over to every vice because they're no longer accountable to anyone. Uh, indeed, if you've ever read the comment sections on the end of news stories, you can see this at work. Very few conversations keep it above board and a high level. In the future of reput- uh, reputation, Solov chronicles many of the ways in which anonymity uh, breeds antisocial behavior, including efforts to negatively impact the reputation of others, often by uh, masquerading or spoofing as them, and throwing a wrench into ad hoc trust networks. In an age where people look you up all the time, right? From potential employers to potential mates, these antisocial networking practices can really damage the common good. Okay, so a fourth um, characteristic, so I'm gonna add to the, the three before with uh, this idea of opaque oversight. In a popular conception, I think, our understanding of communication infrastructure tech and information communication technology infrastructure is that it's a web, right? It's a complex web of point-to-point communications without a central hub, thus without mechanism for central control. This view is often sort of seen as the origin of the libertarian ethos that undergirds sort of the ethics of the web. Now, it may be that cyber-libertarianism is the dominant ethos on large websites. I'm not sure, and I don't necessarily want to argue that one out. But what I do know is that imaging the Internet as an open-access web of independent free movement is simply an incomplete picture, if not just flat-out wrong, of the way the, the web on a technical level works. There are, as it turns out, a variety of controls that we don't see, but they're being used all the time, even here in the U.S. So four kind of levels. One key area is the internet service provider or your phone company that you have your cell phone with. Your computer or cell phone and all the servers that hold the code for the, for the, for the sites or the phone numbers that you want to contact or connected to one another through network of wired connections that route packets of information to later connect up. And your ISP or your phone company charges you money in exchange for this service, right? The ISPs know who you are. On the internet, nobody may know you're a dog, but they can find you and they're gonna bill you whether you're a person or a dog. They don't care. Um, your access is regulated, regulated by a company that provides access to the network and your connection can be limited or severed at any time. A second level is a domain name system, so domain name server system. If you wanna put up anything on the web that goes beyond sort of a little tiny corner of an academic server or something like that, uh, you're going to need to register a domain name, right? What's this, villanova.edu, is that the one here? We have sju.edu. You're going to want a domain name that's easy to find. Um, Domain names are managed under a hierarchy headed by the International Internet Assigned Numbers Authority, the IANA, which manages the top level of the DNS tree and then it filters down to companies like VeriSign in the United States these groups hold the keys without domain name it's really hard to find your site your information easily so they are one of the other gateways. A third level is this network of hardware connections that bring data service Throughout and across national levels. Most nations or geographical regions centralize their routing traffic through a limited number of servers, even if the signals are variously routed downstream. Traffic across national borders is very limited, carried through a very small number of hardline connections and satellites. But by manipulating traffic across these lines and through these gateways, control can be ass- uh, uh, asserted over web and phone traffic. Finally, fourth level is the overarching monitoring and traffic uh, archive and archiving of traffic. Virtually every transaction on the web, unless it is specifically designed you route it in a way to take your ISP or your uh, IP address off, it's recorded and because of cheap storage, most of this stuff your emails are being st- Say for a long time here if you're a villanova on the villanova system ip addresses uh, at which you are connected can be traced and as researchers and reporters have shown even anonymous data can be de-anonymized um, so that by analyzing unique combinations of searches web hits recommendations you can sometimes often find out the specific person who did the anonymous activity with all the records that are kept not only are there gatekeepers to prevent people from doing anything deemed harmful, there's significant investigatory tools. As Scott McNeely, CEO of, I think now former CEO of Sun Microsystems observed 11 years ago, you have zero privacy anyway, get over it. Now in some ways this multi leveled approach to oversight and control at the technical level provides opportunities within the system for I think uh, pursuit of the common good. It's clearly in the areas of law enforcement Um, national security. The internet has increased the distribution of child pornography no doubt, but it's also increased arrests for child pornography. While we often perceive the internet as this open wild west, it, it really isn't. Neither are your phone calls on your cell phone. The system is capable of much more oversight than we give it credit for. It's also a liability certainly depending upon the perspective of those and the actions of those who are doing the oversight when it's being used to pursue economic or political agendas that don't necessarily uh, support common good or integral human development. I think China provides the most transparent sort of example of opaque oversight, right? Um, 2007 China closed a, a whole host of internet cafes which really for a lot of people in many developing nations is their primary place. They don't have a computer, they don't have their own hookup, so they go to an internet cafe to Uh, see what's going on in the rest of their city or country or in the world. Um, In in 2008 or 2009 the Communist Party leaders announced measures to constrain domain names and they retracted 700 domain names from websites in order to sort of c- control what was going on, the, the pr- particular generativity of people within the country. At the national server level, they've had in years for uh, in place the, the program, the Golden Shield program, which is a system of keyword and site restrictions that block access to websites and information the party deems politically necessary or socially dangerous. Um, and in, and very recently, a couple weeks ago, they were found to be infiltrating Gmail accounts of political dissidents within the country. As party officials put it last year, the internet has become an important avenue through which anti-China forces infiltrate, sabotage, and magnify their capabilities for destruction. We would call that Homeland Security, I think, in the United States. We rightly celebrate, uh, for instance, the social use of social media and Twitter. Uh, in the struggle for freedom in Egypt, but we have to remember that for every Egypt there's a Libya where the Internet was shut down the day the revolution began and still hasn't come back up yet. So we live in a communication and information world that's generative, ever-changing, coming at us all the time. It's hard to see what's exactly and how much is coming, what we're missing and what control lurks uh, throughout our lives. But the reality is these texts aren't going away, right? We use them, our children use them, our parents use them, probably more frightening than anything. Our students and teachers use them, our pastors and priests use them, our leaders use them. They have become a central part of our day-to-day experience within American culture and our day-to-day routines. Hence, it's incumbent upon us, I think, to think seriously about how we use them well. It's not just about sort of not just technolog- technologically, like what's the best phone to get, longest battery life and such, but how to use them for the good life, uh, something I don't think in Christianity we've done a whole lot of thinking about. We've let the prevailing cultural or corporate norms rule the day. Um, what I'd like to do now is sort of draw upon the, the virtue tradition within Christian ethics as a starting point, for a reflection here. Part of the Christian tradition from its earliest days, um, virtue theory understands the moral life as a process of forming persons and communities for facility with particular actions and intentions and desires. Rather than starting with the rightness and wrongness of individual acts, setting up rules for action, virtue be- ethicists begin by seeking to understand the habits that are necessary to develop in us good character. Seven of these distinctive habits have been particularly important within the Christian tradition, or these virtues. Um, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, and the cardinal moral virtues of justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. In this approach, the moral life is about cultivating these good habits such that each one becomes a constituent of part of who we are. Good people in good communities are not simply the ones who act in ways that are consistent with faith love and justice or follow the rules about faith, love and justice, they are the ones that succeed in becoming faithful and loving and just. Having been formed then as a just or faithful loving purpose that then pervades the life and informs action in a whole variety of different places. The virtues, I think, offer us a resource for thinking about character in our technology habits, and a resource that will live past the next phone, live past the next particular technology, because that's a moving target, moving way too fast. Um, So I'm going to explore the four sort of traditional moral virtues. Um, within the Christian tradition, and, and they span broader than the Christian tradition, but there, there are a lot of other virtues we could talk about. Um, but I'm going to look at prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. Prudence. Um, one virtue, the first virtue, I think it shed light and provide a helpful lens in examining um, contemporary techno- technology practices, what it might be, uh, if, we're, if we're trying to figure out what it would be like to be a wired disciple of Christ, if you could be that in the 21st century. Um, prudence. As I've noted, prudence uh, virtue is a way of shaping the habits of the life lived well and their patterns of actions aimed at toward sort of fulfilling human purpose and achieving the the particular values within the tradition. Um, Prudence is aimed at applying reason and knowledge to choosing proper courses of action in a given situation. It's about thinking well about what it is that we are to do. Prudence deliberates about the principles at stake in a particular factual context, judges between various actions to be done to fulfill those principles and then commands the will to particular courses of action. So it, it, it deliberates, part of deliberation is gathering information, it judges and then it commands. I think one thing we can all agree on is that we uh, live in an age where not knowing is necessarily a particularly good excuse for not acting, knowledge, information is not our problem. Um, that came out sounding weird, um, there certainly was a time not so long ago when people legitimately didn't know what was going on in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. I think back when I went to El Salvador in 1990, uh, eight months after the Jesuits and their co-workers were killed, most of the people I know had no idea what was going on in El Salvador, no idea. Um, but These days students at St. Joe's and at Villanova are going all over the world to places where we are in need of justice and peace. And we know a lot. We get secondhand accounts instantaneously of what's going on in Japan, right? We knowledge is not the necessarily problem. Yet maintaining the virtue of prudence, I think, very challenging in our contemporary information and communication landscape. Problem is that the data isn't available, but the moving through the process of deliberation and judgment and command of action can be challenging. Consider, for instance, a side effect of the way in which we tend to acquire media, this push media heavy structure that we're a part of. As I noted earlier, one central way that we navigate through the massive flood of information is to create custom information environments. Uh, maybe Newsreader or Flipboard based or Yahoo or Google News where the algorithms curate stories for you. It might be on Facebook where you're getting information for your friends. The danger of our information worlds is becoming is, is that it's becoming constricted. Rather than attaining a broad variety of information, we create almost gated communities of information where we don't find out things that we have not already preordained that we're interested in. And we don't listen to perspectives that we don't already share. Um, The number of people that listens to Air America and Rush Limbaugh, my guess is it's pretty small not a huge venn diagram going on there deliberate the problem is that that we when we get in this habit we can easily miss prudence sort of a deficiency mode deliberation requires an understanding of all of the facts of a situation so we can assess the means at hand it requires that we see an array of circumstances an array of consequences many sides of the situation and a constricted information environment deliberation is hampered and we become imprudent for, lack of knowing. We can also miss the deliberation aspect of prudence, I think, becoming close to certain ways in which the gift of the Spirit so there's a, for each virtue within the Christian tradition, there's a gift of the Spirit um, associated with it and the one associated with prudence is counsel. Uh, counsel is understood as a kind of knowledge, it's right reason regarding performance of particular actions and reason expressed from outside the moral actor, generally, either through um, the, the uh, well through, through the Holy Spirit to the more actor sort of externally to internally, or through the means of the Holy Spirit to another actor who then comes to you. Uh, you know we can see that this is how uh, Catholics uh, one of the ways of understanding the Magisterium and formal social teaching it's a mode of counsel through which the Holy Spirit speaks to the person or the community. another sort of more informally is the idea uh, from from the, from the Gospels and Paul of fraternal correction. These are interested as, as ways of having some sort of authority over the individual believer, the individual moral actor, um, of having a privileged voice in the prudence process through counsel. In a very real sense though, I think our contemporary information practices render this concept of, 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 conce- of, 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 sorry, of counsel, of external authority, pretty null and void. I, Get on Google Scholar and you're awash in competing experts, right? Proliferation of investigative journalism on both traditional news sources and blogs means that the last word, right, from governments and church authorities on things from, you know, back in the day, the Rodney King and White House interns, Abu Ghraib and sexual abuse is regularly shown to be less than the final word. 24-7 24-7 news outlets each with its own editorial policy and practice meant there is in practice no single authoritative outlet that one can turn to for unbiased news, um, if Fox News' slogans notwithstanding. In a life conditioned by contemporary information and communication environment, the concept of authority whether institutional or personal I think becomes irrelevant if not some, simply unthinkable so one part of the Christian notion of prudence this council idea is really compromised a third way I think the tech landscape can kind of miss prudence is that the overwhelming amount of data we have has some negative effects on the command side of things, not just the judgment and gathering of data and, and, and thinking side of things, but on the command side. I'm thinking here of, of Barry Schwartz's work in the, in the paradox of choice, where he's looking at decision making and consumer behavior, suggesting that choices, uh, that happiness with choices may be inversely related to the number of options we have to choose from. Maximizers, who are those who try to find the exact right best choice, often get. Uh, often um, get their choices uh, 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 they, they try to undo their choices later become unhappy with them as they go along because they can't let go of all the options that were there before they always remember that amazon page of the oh shoot maybe i should have gotten the one with thirty two gigs the profusion of information means that the research is never ending and the choices are always in the long term compromise so we never make the command, never make the choice, or we second-guess it. Um, therefore, missing, the, the, uh, Thomas Aquinas' idea would be missing it through excessive solicitude, too much worry about the choices that we are making. Finding the mean of prudence is challenging, and we, there's too much data, so we constrict, and in constricting, we know too little. By creating habits, I think, of finding the mean in the tech life, that midpoint there is going to help us make more prudent choices. A second virtue I think that would be a helpful lens for examining the value of our contemporary tech practices is justice. Justice is the virtue concerned with our relation with others, not necessarily making choices, but then living out those choices easily within the social sphere. Describes our ability to enact a kind of equality between us and those with whom we deal, whether it's describing interaction with individuals, Commutative justice or community in the individual, distributive and more recently social justice, justice is concerned with finding what is fair, with giving each his or her due. When I begin to think about our habits in tech mediated spaces, with our phones or with our computers, what really strikes me is the extent to which we're They're characterized by injustice, especially in one-to-one dealings, commutative justice. Reading through the virtues and vices associated with justice in the Summa, I'm struck by how many of the sort of subordinate virtues to justice that Aquinas mentions that are part and parcel. And you think about, think about sort of discussion on the web, and Aquinas lists um, reviling, backbiting, talebearing, derision, cursing, ingratitude, boasting, hypocrisy, quarreling, Maybe you've seen those online once or twice. Um, It's a veritable who's who, or how's how, I guess, of social media. In short, online folks, Christian or not, evidence this failure by deficiency to give due to another, to give the other the due that is due of basic human dignity. Perhaps it's not surprising in a data agnostic world where anonymity ends up being the coin of the realm. Very few websites require you give your real name, right? When you're making comments, um, Luciano Floridi makes some comments about about sort of that disconnection that happens um, because we can't see other people's faces, right? Um, disconnected from the other party in the opaque moment of interaction, we lose sight of the consequences. And he's right; we don't think about that next step. It's very it's so easy when you don't see eyes, right? Um, To go back to the importance, the symbolic importance of the face and the eyes, with out keeping our eyes on that image and likeness of God, it's easy to uh, make irrational and uninformed decisions um, that skip what is due. Um, Sometimes it's about giving more than what it's due. Uh, It's possible to miss commutative justice by excess. Sometimes we give more than what's fair. Sometimes, to, to look at love, the idea of the ad hoc trust network, sometimes we give too much trust. We deal so often with the apparent um, and are disconnected from what's behind the apparent as well as the consequences of our actions. It's, we, can, we can go too far and give trust to those who are untrustworthy, to disclose too much about ourselves, to send that sexed message when we don't necessarily know what that Guy or gal is going to do with that to give over financial information. Jointson and Payne researchers, a Scandinavian research sociologist, suggest that all it really takes is the perception of trustworthiness of the design of a website. And users are willing to hand over financial data to a perceived trustworthy corporation. Led by impressions of relationship that are created, we can do some altogether excessive things. Justice, of course, comes up in the opaque control and oversight often. Um, Most of the time in America we don't think about, I was talking about China and the levels of control. Um, I think most of us believe, unlike China, we're we're much more free. None of that stuff happens here, yet in the U.S. it's not that oversight isn't exerted, right? It's that it's exerted on an ideology we are much more comfortable with, which would be capitalism. ISPs will provide you with a service no matter your politics but it's based on how much money you can afford, right? And as we move from into the mobile and cell phone, it becomes not only on or off, but way different levels of data plans, right? And if you exceed your data cap, then how much is it going to cost you? Um, Depending upon what... uh, what technology you're talking about, different populations end up in the U.S. unable to fit the bill. In American computer-based broadband, millions around the country, mostly in African-American, Latino communities in the inner city, have severely restricted home and especially school access, the Internet, because it can't afford the market price. The differences between the Lower Merion School District in terms of computer training and Internet access and the Philadelphia School District is stark and along, you know, the gaps in technology and training in schools lead to achievement gaps long-term. We also fail by excess. I'm thinking here of the responses to the intellectual property that we've seen all over here in the United States and in the West, throughout Europe. Um, In France, service can be, your, your service can be permanently cut off in a sort of a three strikes you're out provision of the anti-piracy statutes if you're downloading illegal music or files of any kind but it's noticeably it's not three convictions it's three accusations Hmm, that's interesting similar language is being considered across the EU and Australia and Great Britain where they're actually proposing one strike and potentially here in the United States as part of the current draft of the multilateral international anti-counterfeiting trade agreement the problem is it's very hard to find out what's actually in that because it has been declared by the White House national security priority and so all um, freedom of information requests to find out what's actually in the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement have been rejected Um, we're very touchy about the business of intellectual property Um, and our surveillance systems end up being then not about political ideology but about money related issues. The virtue of justice, I think, looking in terms of that, I don't know what the exact rules should be. I don't think people should be stealing stuff, right? But what the rules exactly should be. uh, If we started looking more in terms of these classic justice categories, I think, would give us a handle um, on how a little bit more to sort of figure out, get us away from the technological imperative and toward putting these decisions back into the hands of civil society. Temperance, third virtue that I think gives us a helpful lens is uh, understood, I think, regulating the tradition, regulating human appetites, generally those relating to the body temperance. We usually think about temperance as as the temperance movement in the early 1900s to get rid of drinking. Historically, it's understood a little bit more broadly in creating habits regarding appropriate level of satisfaction with regard to food or drink or sexual activity. The temperate person is one who is able to find the middle point of satisfaction. You don't want to be a glutton, but you also don't want to be starving. Appropriately satisfying human needs is going to help you not only in the body, but then move toward the higher goods of intellectual satisfaction, knowledge of or relationship with others, and knowledge of God. Now. Sounds kind of obvious when we talk about phones and talk about the net. There's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's an intemperate world. There's pornography all over the place and conspicuous consumption. You can spend so much money buying stuff. Um, I'm thinking in a different realm, though. I think I've been fascinated for a long time with this. Aquinas makes this distinction between studiousness and curiosity when he's talking about temperance here. Um, which I always thought curiosity and studiousness were both good, right? We want to, in college we want to inculcate intellectual curiosity, right? Um, and I, he he has curiosity down as a vice. Well, I, I mean, I knew curiosity killed cats. But isn't it a good thing? When Aquinas is talking about this, they both relate to the, the acquisition of understanding, about knowing, um, satisfaction of the rational appetite. It's an appetite, the mind. It, it, wants to know. Um, studiousness, the virtue, um, it's the keen but moderated pursuit of truth. The pursuit that's ultimately in knowledge, ends in knowledge of God. Curiosity is a vice. How is it a vice? It's, it's disordered. Studiousness, a couple different ways. I think one that that applies is it can become vicious because the acquisition of technology that's not done for that ultimate sake of God this is a decidedly anti-romantic streak here, I mean this is not Matthew Arnold art for art's sake or knowledge for knowledge's sake it's, it, it, that for Aquinas is disordered um, and in a push media and information society that is something that is, is hard to keep, what is the, uh, keep our eyes on the prize of learning, there's more information than we could possibly need and when it comes to us it can be difficult to maintain control over it, I sometimes feel that the information is leading me Telling me what to think about and what matters, um, rather than my directing my own research. The second way that studiousness goes awry is we can get into involved in things uh, intellectually that we are profoundly uh, uh, sort of out of our range of understanding. I think this is common too. I know I've done this where. Um, you know, I hear a scientific study and of course the news tells me only what's half right, so I go to the study itself and I start looking at this thing and it's in some medical journal and it's really hard to read and I get the gist of it but I don't really understand what's going on and all of a sudden I'm out of my depth and I'm thinking, oh my god, I've got that disease. And I get really get wound up, right? Um, now I'm just not saying we should remain ignorant, but We all know that little little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Um, Sometimes diving into the deep end helps you learn to swim. A lot of times it can get you drowned. Um, So finding a balance point here, temperate point of learning would be a useful way to think, I think, about what it is that we do in our tech lives. Help us fulfill this human potential that we have as the rational animal while maintaining sort of some view of what the telos is for our knowledge. Finally, fourth fortitude. Um, in the Christian tradition, fortitude is about um, acting well with regard to the irascible appetite or fear, often fear of death. Aristotle named this one courage, where he placed as a middle point between the vice of cowardice, which is failure by deficiency, and rashness, which was failure by excess. Now, ultimately, I think it makes a lot of sense to add fear of death To fear of death, fear of death of a way of life. I think that's sometimes what the generative capabilities of technology have brought us—the death of a way of life as a new way of being in the world is born. We're living in a time of great social change. There's no question about that, and social change is just stressful. It is. We can look back. We can. We can look back at the Renaissance and the Reformation and say, "Ah." all this great stuff that right new religious practice and learning and all this knowledge that came out, but I don't necessarily think that the promise of Protestantism and representative democracy would have been goods that, and they would have been hard to see if you were living in the middle of religious wars, and revolution, in Europe at the time. Our current social disruption, um, there's certainly consequences that are going to enhance our lives, uh, human development, the common good. Um, social networking for instance. We've got this idea that, that somehow uh, social networking is killing real friendship, but let's not kid ourselves, friendship hasn't been doing that well in the United States for some time. I mean you can look at a whole host of sociological studies that show that social isolation in the United States has been going up since the mid-70s. Social networking software is trying to deal with that question. How can we get connected back up it's amazing to think of my students and how connected they are to their parents compared to myself and I had that one phone on my floor and nobody wanted to use it too much in case somebody was calling, right? Um, Skype it connects up. My my parents have a sister in Kansas City have a sister parish relationship with a parish in in El Salvador and they Skype back and forth between El Salvador and the United States. That kind of solidarity making relationship. Those are really cool things um, and 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 do real connections with one another. And, and it, interestingly, Pew uh, did an interesting study that last November brought it out, saying that ownership of cell phones and participation in Internet activities is actually associated with larger, not smaller, core discussion networks, both in terms of strong ties and weak ties. So despite this widespread fear that we're going toward isolation, the more recent uh, sociology doesn't bear that out, yet these positive things aren't guaranteed, right? They're gonna work less if we bail out, if we give up on the situation, if we fail that fortitude by deficiency. there are first talks. you know there's lots in the street, lots of directions we could go with the post and transhuman. Um, but becoming more engaged in the conversation, and that conversation is a necessary part of the process of making sure we don't go awry. The same is true. Of, of communication information technologies. We also don't want to be very vicious by excess, right, when it's fearlessness. Accepting these things on the good word of a corporation is probably not the best way to go. Um, they can be beneficial, but there are often risks, risks we don't necessarily always think about. Um, there are costs, as we've said, to everything that we do, all the new technologies. Fortitude, thinking in that frame might help us think through those questions. Um, to wrap up, even in their infancy, digital information and communication technologies have shown themselves to be some of the most powerful innovations of the past century in an incredibly innovative century in human life. Internet, cell phones, mobile devices have changed the way that we learn and play and talk with one another. What once required a computer now can be done on a handhelder. or uh, or cell phone and if the industry and developers like MIT Media Lab uh, get their way and keep going the way they've been going these things are going to be worn in your clothing pretty soon or maybe implantable into your jawbone so you can have a cell phone wherever you go. At that point the changes that we've seen so far are likely to pale in comparison, right? And well there's much to be hoped for, there's much to be thought about as well. Um, and as with all human practices ensuring that we're heading down the right road, uh, a road that heads us toward communion of men and women with one another with creation and with God is going to take a lot of thought and a lot of study and a lot of formation. It's clearly a work that needs to be done. I, was, I had the great benefit of being invited to go to the Phillies home opener on Friday. Certainly not the kind of thing that works on a professor's salary very often, but it was a great game as far as really a game that it's kind of the way baseball should be. It was um, slow and methodical and intricate and then explosive and stunning in the final. it It was a great game. Yet around me about half the people that I saw were on their phones doing Facebook or email pretty much non-stop, um, until that last half inning, right? Um, granted, because you can't stand up very easily and see. Uh, granted, it was cold and rainy. It was not the kind of weather that fills you with the zest of life. Um, but it was a moment to be enjoyed, a moment to be remembered, nonetheless. Opening day, right? The guys I was with weren't happy being on their devices, but they couldn't help themselves. It, and it's not just the digital tourists, the older among us, Um, students in my technology ethics class, we have this conversation every semester, they're digital natives but they're not necessarily happy with the tethers, the electronic tethers that are on them all the time. They feel pulled in so many different ways that they're unable to keep up just as anybody else is, yet they can't exactly disconnect because all their friends are there. It seems we like our devices but don't necessarily like what our devices are doing to us. We're not turning back from the web, from cell phones, from mobile devices. We're not changing, nor as a religion, I think. I don't see us heading toward a Neo-Amish Christianity anytime soon. So it's high time, I think, to begin to think more in a more detailed manner about what good action looks like with regard to devices, to wrest control of the text back from the texts themselves. And from the companies and the advertising to look like what and, and think about what intentionally our practices are going to be grounding ourselves in the christian virtue tradition i think opens up a good and helpful way to start so thank you Yes, ma'am. This is the deep philosophical question that I'm going to ask. That came up as you were
2: talking. Would Jesus have a cell phone?
1: That's a really good question. Um, the 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 question. I mean, Jesus gathered the twelve. Yeah, he went around and said, "Drop everything, come, you know, hang out with me. Let's do some stuff." Um, let's change the world, you guys that go out and come back. Um, he sent people out and back. He didn't, um, he also did the big crowds too. It wasn't that he just did the 12, but he did the big crowds. Um, there's two questions then, I guess, that could be teased out. Um, was Jesus all about getting the message out broadly? Yeah. He didn't keep the 12 with him. You know, in the end, it's go to all the ends of the earth. Go. Um, so he was, that was very important to him. Um, he did the 5,000. He didn't do only the 12, right? He, um, was, um, and here's, here's the more speculative part, um, was the physical, physical co-location a non-negotiable? Did you have to be in the same place with Jesus physically? That I'm not sure about. That I'm not sure about. Um, we could get into weird discussions of the post-resurrection Jesus and whether that counts as physically present, or is that was that his avatar? I don't. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't get us in weird directions. Um, I don't know. And you know that that that's a, a, that part of the question. I think is. I mean the the even the, the the response to your question within much of the evangelical community and the pastors and especially within the within the church growth movement would suggest getting the word out is the primary imperative and it doesn't matter how you do that that's the most important thing and that's exactly what jesus wanted so yeah jesus it is the church of facebook the kingdom connected okay um a catholic response i think is going to be more a little more hesitant um, and suggest that a um, physical presence is very important to sacramentality. It's the core of sacramentality. My my guess, if you combine those two, is yes, he would've, but he would've called people to come over to his house, or he would've said, let me come into your house. You know, would've texted his, the apostles, and then said, let's meet up at Larry's Fish Fry. Or, you know, so I, I, but, and that, and that question is really hard. I mean, the one about physicality. The sacramental traditions are going to place a real importance on the on the physical presence, um, which then, of course, would wrap us back around to questions about embodiment in the first three conversations. What exactly does it mean to be a person? And you know, uh, at what point does a body not become the embodied? You know, that kind of question. So yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, So you asked a question about thinking about technology and how it might be useful in the the Christian life. I recently read some stuff on, you know, the end of the institutional church by 2040, and I also at the same time was working on putting solar arrays on houses in West Virginia. One of the poorest counties in the nation is leading the way with getting these arrays on houses. And once they're paid for, they have to take the additional money that they get from having the solar and give it to the next person so that they can get a solar array. So so we're hoping to keep this thing rolling. It occurs to me that if the church isn't on the radar of a lot of young people, but the green movement is, is there in place at this point any place to go on the internet where I could get space age caulk and aluminum tubing and things that I need to build these solar arrays, i.e., whatever it is, whatever mission is in need of whatever product, it seems to me that there could be like a a centralized information place to say, I need space age caulk, and somebody in Minnesota says, My uncle does this, Mm -hmm. I can hook you up with a few cases. And then the missions could grow yep. and we could also pull people in like that are interested in the green movement and suddenly they realize that, oh yeah, we're doing this for, you know, you know, in the in in the name of Christ and to, to bring about, you know, the advancement of our, you know, and discipleship or disciple yes. disciples or you know, but to reach out to the people unchurched.
1: Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I'm not aware of anything like that. At the at the time, but it's an interesting, and it's an interesting move. I think um, one of the um, tensions, maybe, how, how would I say, one of the tensions um, within Christianity, has been this um, holding together versus splitting apart. The apostles are going to the nations; do they come back? Or you know, and we see that I mean, the history of Christianity in America is a, is a, is a, is a tradition. I could either say of fragmentation or of church planting, depending upon which one you value more. And so this sort of coming together to resource well together as almost as a mission, practical side and as a mission side, there's some, there's some things working against that, some tensions there. It's an interesting idea. I have seen um, in the uh, more... Um, During the elections, the last presidential election, I saw a number of different um, sort of again ad hoc trust networks, self-organizing groups of of more conservative Christians who want to opt out of the U.S. government uh, sort of what they saw as the U.S. government healthcare plans. So they were going to do their own co-ops, sort of Christian health co-ops. So it's it's along that same sort of line, but it would be I haven't seen it in the green. It's an interesting. There you go, business opportunity for you. There you, go. There, you there you go. All you need is a website and a few people. That's interesting. Hmm.
2: Thank you for your, uh, for your talk. Um, one of your endpoints on sacramentality and physicality okay. I really love. I speak for the Theology of the Body Institute, okay. which is all about John Paul II's you know, seeing the embodiment of male and female something of the divine. I think it's such an antidote to so much of the disintegration we're seeing. Um, But here's a weird little thing for you, just your comment. My spiritual director was sharing with me that their community has been dialoguing about um, using, say, like an app on the iPhone, iBrievery, where they can do literally the hours on the the iPhone when they travel. And the real brievery in their hand, when they finish praying evening prayer, they might kiss the brievery, the book. Do you kiss your iPhone when (laughs) you... The the strange blur there between yeah, you know yeah. still communicating the the literature the hours but so they're you know it's kind of strange. Well, your thoughts on that?
1: No, that's very interesting. That's interesting. Um. I, um. Y- y- yeah, and and I mean it, it gets at that sort of multi-purpose side of what our cell phones do, right? It's not. I mean, Breviary can be used for really one purpose. Our cell phones many different, I, I mean I think a couple of things, one I think um when I talk with my students there are very few of them that have many Facebook friends that they don't know offline the majority of their friends are going to be people that they know and they see on a regular, basis. maybe it's friends from high school maybe it's family members, I think there is a drive for a lot of people to still have that physicality that physical connection. So it doesn't surprise me, I hadn't heard of that, the abbreviated but it's an interesting question. I think there's still that, that drive to have the physical, um, even in churches where um, Catholic church isn't necessarily um, within its traditions of formation, the, uh, often say really strongly biblically, like the object of the Bible um, is not that strong, but I mean, certainly I, I spent a lot of time with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in college, and the way in which someone will keep a Bible for many, many years and write everywhere, that object becomes very important to them. So, so even across Christian, I mean that, that physicality is still something I think people long for. Um, I got a call from a couple of journalists on the Confession app, the iConfession app, um, which was a, similarly. It's a, an, an app that um, the Vatican was very clear: you cannot have. Absolution via cell phone or via text, but it, it sort of led one through an examination of conscience um, and what, you know is this a useful thing for people? and so yeah, it's, people are struggling. that's it's, it's an interesting, interesting uh, practice and shift of practice. I'm not kissing my phone. Ugh. Anyway.: <laughs>
0: uh, One more brief question, and then we'll have to allow the next speakers to. Um up their, their um, Hi, my name is Erica. I'm a student here at Villanova. Hi. Um, I had a question. You were talking about the um, difference between the social classes and having technology earlier. Um, I was wondering um, if you had anything else to say uh, about that. Um, just because you know, someone who doesn't have this technology is now exponentially less off than someone who does in the world today. Um, and also how that connects to having a false sense of reality by being constantly connected to the internet and uh, other forms of technology. Um, like you also said, that um, in a way it's very helpful um, in giving money to different organizations, but um, how how it has become that maybe you only see Haiti as that little button on your computer. Um, just how to bridge the reality with also
1: using these devices? Yeah. No, it's a, it's a good question, and a good comment. I mean, on the first one, I think what we're seeing um, is um, different um, groups of people are adopting different devices at different rates. So the past, I saw some numbers, so um, the, the last sort of digital dividey household, internet and school internet numbers I saw are about three or four years old. Significant distinctions between African Americans and Latinos on one end and and Anglos on the other end. Um, Biggest growth in the market for cell phone, uh, internet capable cell phones was in the African American community over the last two years. So it's, and this is true a lot of places, not even trying anymore to get computers but going straight to the the phones. St. Joe. I'm sure Villanova is like this. St. Joe's is, you can't apply for a job anywhere at St. Joe's, be it security or as a professor. Um, offline, you can't hand anybody paper anymore. Um, not all web browsers can fill in the forms to apply for a job. How do you apply for a job if you don't have web access? So there's some complicated factors there. Um, but I think you're right, one of the, the other virtues I think is really important um, and it's not one of the classic virtues, but one certainly that was sort of John Paul II's favorite, was solidarity. Um, I would add solidarity is a key thing, that there is an imperative to um, know and be with and work with and for the people on the other end of the button. Because you're right that I could say, well, everybody I know is on Facebook. Well, you stopped seeing the people who weren't on Facebook, so I didn't exist to you anymore. So, of course, everybody you know is on Facebook. It's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's going to, that we're going to have to become very intentional about making sure we don't miss what we're missing. Does that make sense? Or does that, I mean, and that's something I don't think a lot of people do. Um, in the city, you see people who are not like you. In the ideal city, you don't. In the, in the online curated world, you don't and that's, that's a great thing to miss. Great, that's not a, a significant thing to miss. So thank you. Thank Good question. you very much. Ah, thank you.